0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Just let grace speak truth. Speak true. Restart.
1: Restart, this is the kingdom
0: With your no good and camp, you're listening to the Ann campaign's church politics podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason Dixon line, the right reverend Christopher Butler. Now, Chris, I know we usually start off with some fun sports banter and stuff like that or talk about family. But today, there's so much going on that I want to jump right into the politics, if you don't mind. Um. Was it last week or a couple of weeks ago, we talked about um, Senator Schumer and how he basically said that by MLK Day, they wanted to have moved forward on uh, the, the voting rights laws. Well, as all of you uh, know, uh, MLK Day has come and gone. Um, neither of those voting rights bills have been passed. We asked the question, Chris, Chris, initially, was there a plan behind this? Or were they just kind of throwing this out there? Um, and as of now, it kind of sounds like the latter. It sounds like they were getting a lot of pressure. We know that Schumer is, uh, doesn't want to get, uh, primaried against somebody like AOC and stuff like that. And so they're, I think they're basically saying we're trying as hard as we can to do something about these voted, these voter voting rights laws, but they really didn't have a plan. Uh, I get, I guess, why they come down to Georgia. It's, you you know, some would say it's ground zero of the voting rights conversation. But both of the Georgia senators are already supporters. Um, you saw that some voting rights organizations in Georgia didn't even come. In fact, Stacey Abrams didn't come to uh, the president and the vice president's event in Atlanta. Now, she said she had a scheduling conflict, but nobody has a scheduling conflict when it comes to the uh, most powerful man in, in America. Right. I, I mean, if anybody buys that, I was watching a couple of shows uh, here in Georgia, political shows where they tried to pass it off. No, she just had a scheduling. conflict. Anybody that you have a meeting with that doesn't understand that the president called you <laughs> to be somewhere with them, uh, you probably shouldn't be doing business with them. So uh, we don't necessarily buy that. I get it. But nobody buys that. Uh, some would say that it was because of his, you know, uh, Biden's low ratings. Somebody, some would say because there really had been no movement. A lot of activists said this is all performative. And to an extent, it's hard to dispute that some of this seemed very performative. Um, some other people, I've heard Republicans say that this is all Democrats preparing to use uh, the idea that Republicans are cheating as an excuse for getting blown out in, in, in November. I don't know. Chris, I'd love to hear what you have to say about what's going on with voting rights and and where we stand.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, any of those proposals uh, seem more legitimate than uh, the proposition that they thought they were going to pass this bill. Um, And I I think they are trying to set up, you know, talking points and conversation heading into the midterm. But, you you know, where I am on this stuff, Justin, I, I don't know why this was the thing that got like the real hardball focus and the big tactics um, instead of saying like a straight up and down vote on something like the child tax credit uh, or some kind of police reform where you actually have like Mitt Romney has a child tax credit proposal. Uh, Tim Scott has a police reform uh, proposal where there was something where you could maybe try to actually get to a win. Um, just, I mean, I, I don't get it. I think that it's uh, just another misstep, but we'll see. Yeah, we'll see what happens. Obviously, with
0: this conversation came a lot of talk about uh, removing the filibuster. Um, you know, the you know the filibuster has you know been compared to, to Jim Crow 2.0 and all that stuff. And it's an you know it's an interesting, I guess, conversation. But somebody posted something that showed when, and and this was a bad moment for the Democrats. I, I have to admit, somebody showed something where. Uh, Scott Senator Scott was proposing the police reform and how you know they you know it wasn't everything that Democrats wanted it was certainly something it's more than we have now and Democrats basically filibustered it um some would say because they wanted to wait until they could just do it themselves and get it done the way they wanted to some would say that they didn't want him to get credit either way they used the filibuster on police reform legislation
1: and never got anything done Use it on police reform legislation that was proposed by an African American man from the South. Um, and I think on this voting rights bill, you know, if you want to go at the filibuster, go at it on child tax credit. Go at it on, uh, you know, something that sort of brings folks together and that doesn't feel performative to the community that you're trying to bring on. You know, Justin, just like I do, like I, I got people in my church who literally lived in the South during the time of Jim Crow. And it is very, very difficult to convince them that Republicans are presently doing something that is uh, equal to the sort of voting rights horrors of Jim Crow. Now I'm all about protecting voting rights. We should be always trying to make it easier Um And and smarter to vote, not more difficult. But when you try to say, oh, well, you know, they're returning us back to Jim Crow, there are people living all over the United States who know what that is because they lived it. And it only takes one moment to look around and say, you know, it, it may even be bad. The bills that are being proposed in different states around the country may be setbacks. But if you overplay that rhetoric, I think you lose a lot of credibility.
0: Yeah, I agree, man. And so this is this is something that's not going to stop the rhetoric or or any of this other or any of this talk anytime soon. But it does have to be examined uh, in, an, in an objective way. And I think Democrats are hurting themselves right now. While at the same time, let's not let the Republicans off the hook. I mean, there were bad intentions when it comes to voter rights, whether they were as effective or impactful as other some would say. I don't know about that. But there were bad intentions when it comes to an issue that's very important. So we're just going to start off with that conversation. Wanted to give you an update from a conversation we had before. Um, as usual, man, we want to shout out our sponsor, the Fetzer Institute, uh, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it at the end. The last part of this episode, we are going to make the announcement that I've been teasing out for a while, something that's really important. And we're excited to partner with the Fester Institute on this. So stay tuned, listen to the whole episode. You will hear something very exciting, I think, from many of you. So as usual, uh, grab your Bible, get your mind right, and prepare to think, not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, like a Christian. Chris, on several occasions uh, throughout doing this podcast and just in my kind of public witness, I've spoken on the reality and the perils of identity politics. In my view, identity politics, as manifested in America today, is a direct result of the racism and sexism that was explicitly written into our laws for hundreds of years. And in some cases, still lingers in our systems and institutions today. Identity politics, in my opinion, again, is a rational response to a system that excluded and discriminated against people based on their identity. It's a defense mechanism of sorts. Now, this exclusion and discrimination, this is objective historical fact. So I hope we can start this conversation with agreement on that. Think about disenfranchisement think about redlining think about separate but equal based on american history it's fair to assume that if your identity isn't represented at tables of influence and power then neither is your interest yes we should all be able to represent others impartially and just as zealously as we represent ourselves i, I get the ideal of that but the fact of the matter is that historically. That hasn't often been the case. Again, identity politics is grounded in a reasonable inference based on the history of how our country has operated. Representation matters in a a country where representation hasn't always been guaranteed like it's supposedly like it was supposed to be guaranteed in, in the Constitution. But here's the tension. Identity politics might be a reasonable deduction. But identity politics can also quickly become absurd and dangerous. Not only can it undermine the importance of character and competence. Those are things that have nothing to do with your identity. But it also compels us to look at the world through an us versus them frame. It very quickly, Chris, becomes tribalistic. We, the children of the light, are fighting for all that is good and righteous against them the children of the darkness even when we're in the right we should all know that our motives and causes are never that pure that our allies are never that angelic and that our opposition no matter how bad they might be at any any given moment or how bad they may seem they're never irredeemable and sometimes our opposition is right sometimes our opposition is right about us but in this tribalism that, that can be brought about by identity politics. People who don't share our iracial identity or our biological sex or our nationality or our ideology are the them. And as far as we can tell or as far as we care to tell. They don't suffer. They don't go through what we go through. Or when we do admit that they suffer, it's because they're fragile. Or because they deserve it. And then we boast about drinking their tears and owning them. We revel in their humiliation. We're so caught up sometimes, Chris, in protecting ourselves from them that we become blind to their suffering and pain. In fact, to acknowledge their suffering is tribal heresy. Because to acknowledge their suffering is understood as strengthening their claims and weakening our claims. Now, I want to be very clear on this. It is so important. And I want to stress this point. It is so important to deal with our own trauma in order to find peace and health, to understand who uh, in times has victimized us. But we also have to admit that in our brokenness, in our tendency towards excess, that, th- that this need has quickly turned into a culture of what we could call trauma porn. Many of us are so caught up in how we believe we've been violated in real or perceived ways that we have no ability to see or show compassion towards people outside of our group or groups who we think we share a common enemy with. This culture of self-indulgence is deadly. The whole idea of I'm concerned with I'm only concerned with my feelings and I interpret everything as if it was meant to affirm me or erase me and my feelings. Our self-pity leaves no room for others, no compassion or grace for them. There's an interesting quote uh, from James Baldwin about this type of sentimentality. He says that sentimentality, the, uh, the ostentatious parading of excess and spurious emotion is the mark of dishonesty. It can become a mask of cruelty. Keep that in mind as I talk about these next few statistics and and this next issue. Listen to this, Chris. The United States averages 275 drug-related deaths per day. And most of the deaths are white men without college degrees. Now, we must all ask ourselves, does it matter that this is a primarily Trump-supporting demographic? That some of these folks, certainly not all of them, hold racial animus. Now, the other thing that we find in the statistic is that black men are quickly catching up in regard to that statistic. Are we going to allow ideas and the truth of toxic masculinity and the truth of patriarchy to keep us from feeling some kind of way about that statistic well listen here last week patrick brown wrote an article in city journal entitled opioids and the attached and the unattached male the, stati- the statistic i just mentioned chris uh 20, 20, 275 drug-related deaths per day is disproportionate disproportionately Uh, A crisis of single men. Single men. The latest CDC data shows that thirty five thousand four hundred and nineteen single and divorced prime age males. That's uh, from twenty five to fifty four died of drug related causes, a thirty five percent increase from the year before the never married make up one third of the prime age male population but compose two-thirds of that demographic's drug-related deaths. From, from t- 2020 to th- 2019, the drug-related death rate among uh, never-married, prime-age white men increased 125%. 125% over less than a decade. The article rec says that, that it recognizes that a marriage certificate is no uh, prophylactic against the scourge of drug overdoses, but marital status is correlated with income, race, and age. While we may not be, while they may not be able to precisely measure marriage's uh, casual impact on any given individual, there is no sor- shortage of research that suggests marriage can play a very real role in helping ourselves, our children, and our communities strong evidence suggests that the status quo in public policy so policy plays into this folks we, we got to know that but it says that strong evidence suggests that the status quo in public policy can prejudice individuals decision making for or against marriage at least on the margin a um a 2019 HHS report found that marriage penalties in tax and transfer programs had the biggest impact on working-class families with incomes between 100 and 250% of the federal poverty line. Some working-class and middle-class parents tell focus groups that they would like to marry, but choose not to for fear of losing the in-kind benefits they receive. The article concludes with this, Chris. It says that if marriage by itself does not guarantee better outcomes, It has the potential to transform people's lives as an institution aimed at permanence, selflessness and stability. Any agenda to combat the scourge of drug overdose, the scourge of drug overdoses must include moving beyond moving beyond agnosticism, excuse me, toward marriages, uh, potential benefits and undoing the barriers that make it harder for many adults to get married and live longer and healthier lives so we have a few things here we have a demographic that we can say doesn't receive the you know that 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 isn't the most popular among some other demographics in america right now who are being affected heavily by drug overdoses and and really just uh deaths of despair in general and then we have this understanding that there may be some role for marriage to play in this whole conversation Chris t- talk to me about what you take from these statistics and just the the idea that the uh, writer proposes here.
1: Yeah, I mean I think the that the article is is right on and your um analysis is right on. Uh I, I think that the you know when you think about this idea of identity politics, if you want to get into a conversation around uh Opioids, which the article references, and we should also note here that opioid abuse, opioid addiction, and opioid deaths are on the rise in other communities um, as we speak. But right now, if you want to talk about opioid crisis, you're going to be standing up for white men and that is a very, uh, uncomfortable place for a lot of people, uh, unfortunately. Um, you know, as, as we talk about in, in the book, Compassion and Conviction, um, when, when people, uh, mention the book to me, one of the things that, uh, is often, uh, highlighted is the appreciation for our discussion in that book on, uh, this idea of identity politics, uh, because there are a lot of people who want to pretend that identity politics is sort of like irrational behavior and you they don't understand where it comes from. And I think an honest look at uh, the history of our country uh, would suggest that it's not perfectly irrational uh, to start to think about how you can uh, create political power for people who uh, come from a similar background. Uh, have a sort of uh, a similar ethnic uh, uh ex uh, ad, ad expression um, and come from the same community look like you all those types of things but it it really just ultimately is not a solution for anybody uh to to go at politics that way uh, as we discuss in the book one you end up with uh insane amounts of tokenism uh in politics people who look like you in the face but uh don't think the way that you think, don't live the way that you live, Uh and, and oftentimes don't even really share uh, uh the same kind of life experiences. The other piece of that is it makes us unable, like in this case, to stand up for what we know is right, just because it's not necessarily impacting, quote, our people. You can't look at folks who are uh, being victimized. Cause as we have talked about, uh, before on this podcast, uh, the opioid crisis was not just like a random mistake, right? Like there are people and entities that actively, uh, push synthetic opioids, uh, you know, into communities for uh, profit and gain. So people are being victimized. Um, people are hurting. Uh, in, in a lot of different ways, which drive them to these opioids, a lot of communities, not communities that that we, uh, you know, have all lived in. But these are folks communities that were decimated by decades of sort of uh, unchecked capitalism, uh, something that, you know, me and probably a lot of folks who think sort of the way that I think. Would say that that's wrong, you know, decades of unchecked capitalism, it decimated folks' communities. Uh, so people are being victimized. People are hurting, uh, in a lot of ways, mentally, emotionally, uh, economically. Uh, and, and now people are actually dying. And we can't say anything about it because those people who are still image bearers of, of God, uh, because those people happen to be white men, we, too many of us in uh, sort of uh, uh, justice spaces cannot say anything about it. And I think that's really, really um, unfortunate. The other piece of this, uh, which is why you can't get into that identity politics, right, is because now many of us find ourselves on the outside of the whole identity politics framework when it comes to discussion uh, of things like marriage, right? Because, uh, you know, it, when I was reading the article, uh, it's, you know, you're looking at all these, uh, data points and the statistics and, uh, a lot of the sort of, uh, uh, social science and the academic discussion of marriage. And I actually wrote in the margin as I was reading Justin, uh, I, I said it's almost as if there's some kind of immutable wisdom involved here, right? Uh, where this, uh, you know, seemingly ancient institution just still carries so much good for human flourishing. Uh, it's almost like, there's some immutable wisdom that's at play. Uh, but you can't talk about that. And, uh, you know, as quick as we are to fall into identity politics and, well, we can't stand up for white men, but some, now many of us, you know, people who listen to this podcast, you find yourself on the outside of that, right? Because so much of our, that same crew has gone over uh into a sort of, um, you know, the sort of cultural liberalism And, you know You see these things coming together And, and it's it's uh, an interesting topic For me, because I, I Fundamentally believe that sort of Unchecked capitalism And economic regressivism And cultural And social uh, Liberalism are both deeply Rooted uh, in this Basic idea that I can Put self before society Um, and sort of whatever I think is good for me or whatever I think is going to maximize my, uh, you know, enjoyment, uh, I can lean into that no matter how it may impact somebody else, um, and, and the broader experience of society. And I think that same idea is actually anchoring, um, both of these issues that are at play here. And, uh, it's, it's, it's. Really unfortunate that people are locked into uh, these ideas. I, you know, this is one of the reasons I, I love the work of the end campaign, because I think that this is the great movement that is necessary uh, in our time. Uh, if we are going to rescue our politics and our public life and dare I even say like a functional society, we have to somehow get out of this identity politics trap. Uh, we have to somehow be able uh to you know be able to distinguish uh issues you know issue by issue form coalition uh where it makes sense uh and and really have a whole different sort of alignment in our not not just in our politics but even in like our political thinking and, and our civic discourse and this issue highlights it uh, in a profound way but it impacts so many other issues our inability or unwillingness uh to just be more thoughtful than many people are being,
0: yeah, I agree, and, and so listen closely to what we're saying about uh identity politics. It would almost be impractical, right? It would be very ineffective to see how this country has been run and not to you not to come to your group and kind of have some solidarity to make sure that you have a place at the table. That would be to me irrational, it wouldn't make sense, and in fact, almost every uh immigrant group that's come over here, almost every group that's come to America has done some sort of identity politics now others blend into larger society better than others others you know some folks were brought over here uh and and it wasn't voluntary uh and they don't blend in as well right so th- th- those identity politics may last a little longer but it is a reasonable response that doesn't mean that it's an absolute good and i think what happens sometimes is we say okay it's reasonable it makes sense it's effective it's practical therefore it's a you know it's some kind of absolute good it's not it can go wrong as chris pointed out you, you get the uh the tokenism uh it's so easily manipulated if all i got to do is get somebody that looks like you and you're going to support them that means they can really be doing my bidding but as long as they look like you and say the right things and touch on things that 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 you, that um that you feel within your you know the heart of your identity then you're going to go along with it we've got to be uh, smarter than that. When we go out and do politics, it it doesn't help us. It doesn't help anybody else. So there is a reason, uh, that we're having this conversation. That we're saying that it that it's very important, and uh, and and that folks need to follow it a little better. The folks need to jump out of identity politics because I think the worst part of it, even if we talk about politically, you know, how it may not be the best way to go, if it causes us not to feel the pain of others. If it causes us to be so obsessed with ourselves and we do need to pay attention to ourselves, but be so obsessed with ourselves that we have no room to consider somebody else's pain. That statistic, those statistics that we just gave should be heartbreaking. And if there's any reason, if there's any ism or if there's any theory or narrative that keeps you from being heartbroken about that. That's a problem. That's not biblical. We need to do something about it. We need to work together. We need each other, and we have to care about people outside of our group. Chris, I'll let you take us out.
1: Yeah, I mean, this ultimately, this podcast, you know, reaches uh, primarily to believers, and I would just reiterate what you said because um, it's what the end campaign is all about. Like, what when, when these uh, sort, this sort of tribalism uh, forces you out of sort of a Christian ethic, uh, which will obviously, um, mourn for a community that's suffering, uh, in the way that, that this community is suffering at this time, uh, and, and you have a political narrative that doesn't allow you to do that, then, uh, you got to find a different approach, uh, because ultimately, uh, we have to follow Christ.
0: Ultimately, we have to follow Christ. We'll be right back on the church politics podcast. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Chris, we, we've both heard the debate that's been going back and forth between kind of conservatives and progressives. And the big question is, is Twitter real life? Are the opinions on Twitter, Twitter representative of the general public? Are the issues that people care about on Twitter, do they represent how the general public feels? Or is it some kind of bubble that actually only represents a small percentage or small, you know, uh, a group of the general public. It's a question that needs to be answered, I think it's important because especially when you talk about. Folks who are in the media, folks who are in politics, a lot of them pay a lot of attention to Twitter. So if it's not representative, then it could skew some of their ideas, skew some of what they think the public is saying. Well, according to a Pew, according to the Pew Research Center, only 23% of US adults use Twitter. And of those users, the most active 25% produce 97% of all tweets. Nearly all tweets come from less than 6% of American adults. If we take those statistics, Chris, I think we can conclude That Twitter probably is not representative of public opinion, that the issues that might be the most pressing issues on Twitter might not be the most pressing issues to the general public and may not even be newsworthy. Now, this causes a problem for some, because I think we saw even during the last presidential election or, or the primaries, at least I saw some campaigns completely fall apart based on the fact that it looked like their staffs and what was driving the campaign was Twitter was the ideas, the influence and the pressure that comes from Twitter. I think that was one of the problems with uh, Kamala Harris's campaign. Um, We can talk about, you know, whether you thought she was a good candidate, whether you thought she was a bad candidate, but for someone to come in where many thought she was the favorite to win And then really not even make it to the really not even make it to the caucuses and and primaries. That's a lot. And if you look back at some of the messaging that she had and, and how she changed positions and when she changed positions, a lot of that looked to be influenced from Twitter. A lot of one of the problems and we talked about this before, Chris, one of the problems that the Democrats have is that they're getting people that are straight out of these kind of academic bubbles professional class bubbles those are the folks who are kind of going to be more so on twitter and so they you instead of being in the community and knowing what the community is saying they're looking at twitter and they're thinking that that's exactly what the general public is thinking and that's what they need to respond to they're thinking that the activist that is in their uh uh mentions all day telling them this and telling them that is actually representing a larger group when they might not be And so this really can present a problem. Again, it also presents a problem when the media is paying so much attention to Twitter and responding to Twitter and in this bubble and may not be getting the issues and the news out that other people need to hear and other people need to see. Chris, what are your thoughts on this
1: Twitter versus the real world debate? Full disclosure, I'm on Twitter uh, and, you know, check it out. I, I tweet you know, my share of tweets. Um, but it certainly is one of those things where if you are in the community, uh, there are things that get a lot of play on Twitter, um, that just don't show up. You know, I'm running for Congress, right? Uh, and there, there's a lot of stuff that gets conversation on Twitter that does not come up when you're knocking on doors and, uh, talking to people in communities um this is this is really like a uh kind of a age old thing for those who have been in and around politics which is why it's crazy to me frustrating to me uh that the national uh party uh the democratic party at least has chosen to go this route of plucking folks right out of university and that kind of thing cuz i mean if if you've ever worked on like an aldermanic campaign, right? Like there is a real need to have like that person who like really knows like what's going on on the block, uh, what's happening, uh, right where people are. And if, if you don't have that type of thing, you're going to say the wrong stuff. You can talk about the wrong issues, uh, and just do things the wrong way. And then what, what Twitter has done, I think has, sort of massively expanded that that gap between what sort of like the the tastemakers the party bosses whatever you want to call it what they are thinking and discussing and what everyday people are thinking and discussing uh and i do think there's like a growing disconnect uh now what does happen is that so many of those folks on twitter Even though it's such a small percentage of the, of the population, that group controls so much of the media and what people consume on their television, uh, in the, you know, the newspapers, uh, when they, when they explore that kind of stuff, uh, you know, so many of those people on Twitter control political parties, uh, corporations, other large organizations, uh, and so this small little group—I mean—it's a dynamic that we've had again in America for a long time. This is just uh, the the latest expression of it, and I, I do think that it it has exacerbated the reality. Uh, but the reality has sort of always been there. Now it's just much more concentrated, where there's this small, small group of people who just control too much of our lives, you know, what we get to talk about, what we get to see, what we get to read about, uh, you know, the news reports on what these folks want to hear uh, and see. And so so then you do sort of start to force that into conversation, uh, but it's not because these are the things that are impacting people in their homes and in their communities every day.
0: Yeah, that's true. And and we're both on we're both on Twitter. And so I I, I appreciate that admission because it is it's, it's something that I look at every day. It's something I look at all the time. But one of the things I can say I appreciate about you, Chris, is that you're also in the community. Uh, You're also like you said, you're knocking on doors. You you are the pastor of a church. You are active in the community with your community service and things of that nature. You're not in some kind of lifestyle enclave like many of these political strategists are that just don't have any connection. This is an issue that, you know, people need to think about because it also skews how we look at certain people. It also, you know, plays into what biases we have and and what blind spots we have. It's it's something to think about. We will be right back, folks, on the Church Politics Podcast. And wait, don't go anywhere because it's time for our announcement. We'll be right back. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. Now, I know we've been teasing this out for a minute. I know we've been talking about the partnership that we have with the Fetzer Institute, and we have something really big coming up. And it is all of that. And now is the time for us to really talk about it. But let me kind of set the context, if you will. As y'all know, and and we talk about it ad nauseum on here, the American political system is in desperate need of leaders who are more committed to human dignity and timeless moral, moral principles than they are to partisan and ideological tribalism. Um, our political disc, our public discourse, our political landscape is in trouble. Our democracy is in trouble and we desperately need leaders who are willing to deal with it in a real way. And I think accordingly, the church has to begin to recruit and train leaders within its own institutions, Rather than having our leaders being trained by partisan, secular institutions that may not teach them true values or not, but but indoctrinates them towards other things. In my time in politics, Chris, and, and I know we've had this conversation and you've you've seen the same thing. I can't tell you how many Christian friends and associates have gone into politics. And just surrendered their Christian convictions, gone in almost as if it was. A given that they would have to surrender their convictions to really participate at a high level. How many friends and people I care about have been indoctrinated. Um, bipartisan and, you know, ideological points of view that can't stand up to biblical scrutiny. It's heartbreaking. It's hard to watch. It's hard to to continually see this over and over again. I was having a recent conversation with somebody and the rhetoric somebody we knew was using was, you know, it it was indicative of exactly what happens to people when they get into that space. So in response to all this, in response to what's going on, this dynamic, this phenomenon that I've been talking about, the and campaign and our partners, namely the Fetzer Institute, have assembled an experienced team of professionals and created a practical gospel centered curriculum to answer the call. We will be launching the Christian Civic Leadership Academy, the Ann Campaign's Christian Civic Leadership Academy. The mission of the Academy is to form and equip Christian leaders to effectively engage the civic arena with the compassion and conviction of Jesus Christ. The Academy is a nonpartisan, education initiative focused on developing orthodox Christians to run for elective office, manage political campaigns, lead civic organizations, and design policy. We're seeking applications from biblical Christians who are seriously interested in serving believers and non-believers alike in the public square from a leadership position. While we encourage all Christians, and y'all know this, we encourage all Christians to be civically engaged, The Christian Civic Leadership Academy is not for people with a casual interest in politics. Though uh, the academy is distinctly is a distinctly Christian endeavor, we passionately we will passionately embrace. The call to civic pluralism. All right. This is a Christian endeavor, but we will embrace the call to civic pluralism, not theological pluralism. There's a difference. Our fellows that come through these cohorts will be trained to uphold biblical tenets within politics while respecting the beliefs of others and working to improve democracy for all people. The CCLA fellows will become part of a community of believers who support, inform, and hold one another accountable even after these cohorts end. Now, the first two cohorts, this is important, this is important details right here, the first two cohorts will be limited to Christians from Atlanta, Georgia, or at least the Atlanta, Georgia area or region and the Chicago region. This is this is a pilot. And so the, the this pilot will be for folks in the Atlanta region and the Chicago region. Um, and there will be in-person meetings throughout the program. However, we are prayerful um, and we're prayerfully looking to expand the program nationwide in the near future. So that's what we want to do. Uh, this is this is going to be a 10 plus week program uh, with virtual and and, and in-person courses. uh, And the selected applicants will be announced on March 10th of of, uh, 2022. The deadline to apply is March 1st. If you want to run for office, if you want to get into politics, you know a little about politics, you know a lot about politics, you don't exactly know where to start, but you want to do it right. You want to do it with integrity. You're not looking to just be Uh, the perfect Republican or the perfect Democrat, this might be for you. You need to apply. All right. Chris, talk a little bit about why this is important and and what motivated us to uh, create this this program.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited about uh, the launch of this Christian Civic Leadership Academy uh, out of the campaign, uh, because, you know, there I don't know if, if people know it, but I don't think that there is any. Uh, sort of group, uh, you know, sort of politically influential group that has not established this sort of talent pipeline. Uh, when you start looking around, uh, I know from my personal experience coming, you know, as a as a community organizer uh, and through sort of democratic and progressive politics, uh, when you start looking around the people who have run for office, the people who staff their campaigns, Support them and, you know, went in office and you start looking at how many of these folks went through the Wellstone Institute, uh, the Midwest Academy, you know, one of these sort of, uh, industrial area foundation, uh, trainings, all, Gamaliel, all these different groups that, that produce, uh, you know, this, this talent pipeline. Uh, and there needs to be for the sake of our public witness, as Orthodox Christians, uh, there needs to be this kind of pipeline. Uh, I, I will mention, as you know, and even been in the process right now of running for office, when you start trying to build a campaign, and, and it's very important when you build a campaign, uh, that you sort of have uh, what I call internal integrity. Right. So th- that you have people in the campaign, the folks who run your comms and uh, do your field and all that kind of stuff. The best campaigns have people in those campaigns who understand the philosophy uh, of the candidate, understand the philosophy of the campaign and embrace that. Uh, and as somebody, you know, sort of running from the place where people who listen to this podcast know where I'm coming from is really hard right now, uh, to build that sort of internal integrity, uh, is really hard for somebody. Maybe there's somebody who's in elected office right now, uh, and, you know, is doing their level best, you know, to maintain, uh, the sort of compassion and conviction of scripture. Uh, but that's so difficult to do when you're being staffed by folks who don't understand that don't embrace, uh, that philosophy, and you can't just bring people into your campaign, into your office because of their sort of uh, uh, theological framework. They also have to have the professional chops uh, to do their jobs at a high level, uh, and so that is what meets, in my mind, that's what meets in uh, the End Campaigns Christian Civic Leadership Academy is going to be the cultivation of that sort of operating philosophy, the uh, under, underlying uh, theological and philosophical frameworks uh, that are necessary to be faithful uh, with the development of the professional capacities uh, that are necessary to do these things and do them at a very high level.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're going to come in here for the folks who, who become fellows, and you're going to know the X's and O's of campaigns, of, you know, all that stuff. But you're also going to hear about the ethics, the framework um, what to anticipate, you know, what obstacles to anticipate. We're bringing some of the best and brightest in here to make sure this training goes right. So if you want to run, if you want to work on campaigns or you want to run a civic organization and you live in these two regions, you're going to need to apply. Or if you know somebody who you think should run or who's interested, who's a biblical Christian, then make sure that they know and that they get involved with this. We're going to have a great pool of applicants. You know, everybody's not going to make it. It's going to be competitive. But we really want folk. We really want to give folks a chance to be a part of this and to make this work. If this is also a reason why you need to support the campaign, if you really want to see something like this grow and you understand the importance of it, this is why we need your support and we need you to continue supporting us. This is how you change the game. It's not about being a flash in the pan. It's not about doing something that everybody can see on Instagram for a year. It's about institution building. And cultivating the values that are lasting in the communities that help values last. That's what we're trying to accomplish with the AND campaign. We need your help. We want to get you engaged. We want to get you in the game in a real way and see Christians change how our political landscape is operating right now. So, again, be a part of that. We want you to we want you to join. Really excited about it. This won't be the last time that we talk about it on this podcast, but this is what we have been alluding to uh, for the last few months. Uh, as always, thank you for joining us on the ANN campaign, on the Church Politics Podcast, rather. We appreciate all your support. Uh, and as usual, ANN camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor, nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ until next time and well, camp. Oh Lord, I say kingdom.
1: kingdom.